Please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. When our daughter was little, we bought her a, a, a savings bank, a little bank. We uh, decided we wanted something a, a little bit more significant than a pig. So we found a, uh, it was a ceramic J-O-Y. And it, you know, that fit really well for her. Her name is Anna Joy and her nickname is Joy. But the bank actually wasn't about her name. It was, in a sense, a bank that kind of guided you into giving priorities. J was for Jesus, the O for others, and the U for yourself. So as you think about all the wealth that God has provided for you, you think in terms of these priorities. Jesus first, others second, and then for yourself. And what we realized as we gave her this bank is it really works beyond just your money. It works well for your life. What are your priorities in life? Do you have priorities in life? Are you asking yourself what your priorities are? Are you living a life that's really intentional? I have a friend who he signs off on every letter or every email on purpose. It's his reminder to himself that he wants to live an intentional life, not an accidental life that's just kind of moving along, but a life that is, in fact, on purpose. Jesus, others, yourself. What was interesting to me as I was reading through 1 Corinthians 9, the beginning of the week, I realized these are really the, the three points that Paul makes in this chapter. Regarding Jesus, he says, I do all things for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Everything in my life is oriented around Jesus. Second, I do all things for all men. I become all things to all men so that I may by all means introduce everyone to Jesus Christ. And then finally, he says of himself, I run to win. I want to live the best possible life that I could live, which means Jesus first, others second, and then myself. The problem in the Corinthian church was that they were just adrift. They got swept along in the culture and they really weren't living intentional, purposeful lives. They were just living accidentally. And so Paul writes to reorient their perspective and reset their priorities on Jesus, on others, and then on themselves. So I want you to read with me beginning in chapter 9 and verse 15. Paul writes, But I have used none of these things. We've got to pause right there and say, well, what are these things that Paul's talking about? We we just jumped into the middle of chapter 9, which is actually the middle of a bigger section, 8 through 10. So I want to reset the stage for you if I can. You're calling 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Paul kind of gets up in the Corinthians' face and he says, look, you you, you think you have these rights, these so-called rights, that you can go back into the idol's temples and you can eat meat there. And you think this is your right. He says, but the problem with this right that you are claiming is that it is destroying the faith of your fellow believers, your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. So why not give up that so-called right? Then in chapter 9, Paul says, I actually have real rights because I'm an apostle. And I can pull out that apostle card and I can tell you, you know what, you should be paying me for the work that I do on your behalf. And I have the right to receive money from you. I have the right to bring along a believing wife. The other apostles do that. But all of these so-called rights that I have, I don't claim them. Why? Because I want people to know Jesus. Then chapter 10, he says, I have real rights, but you need to understand, you actually don't have rights. That right that you think to go back into the idol's temple and celebrate a feast there, that is idolatry. And he gives them the example of Israel and how idolatry destroyed the nation of Israel. And he says, flee from idolatry. It's not a right. 
It's destroying you and it's destroying others, so flee from idolatry. And then he wraps up the whole section at the end of chapter 10 in verse 31. He says this, Whether then you eat or whether you, or wh- whether you eat or whether you drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many, so that they may be saved. Therefore, be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. Put Jesus first. Go back with me to chapter 9, verse 15. Let's pick it up again. Paul says, But I have no, used none of these rights of mine, and I am not writing these things, so that it will be done so in my case. For it would be better for me to die than to have any man make my boast an empty one. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. 1 Corinthians 9, he uses the word gospel nine times. And he alludes to the gospel over and over and over again. The central theme of 1 Corinthians 9 is the gospel. And Paul says, the gospel is a compulsion for me. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he puts it like this. He says, the love of Christ controls us or constrains us. The love of Christ is like this, this pressure down upon me. It binds me. It surrounds me. It directs all of my life. Remember, Paul had a direction in life. He was a very focused individual, a very committed individual, but he was marching a direction away from God. He was committed to destroying the worship of Jesus Christ. And so he was on his way to Damascus on the road and Jesus appeared to him and totally changed his life and totally reoriented his life. And Paul says, now I understand the purpose of life is Jesus. And so I live for Jesus. My question for you this morning is, why do you live? Do you even ask yourself that question? Why do, you, why do you do what you do? Why do you make the choices that you make? Why are you here? If someone looked from the outside in at your life, what would they say? Is the central organizing principle or value of your life? Interesting illustration for you that I stumbled upon this week. In the city of Pompeii, they have excavated a home. The name of the home that they've given to it is the house of the figured capitals. So when this home was standing, as you would walk in, there was a column on the right-hand side, and at the top of the column there was a capital, and engraved on the capital on the front side was a man and woman, husband and wife, the owners of the home. And on the back side, there was a, a drunken satire and a minad, one of the, the consorts of the god Dionysus, the god of wine and pleasure. In other words, it was a home dedicated to pleasure. It was a party house. Why did this family, why did this husband and wife, why did this home exist? For pleasure. Pleasure was the central organizing principle of the life of this family. So I ask you again, what is the central organizing principle or value of your life? Why do you live? Why do you exist? Are you asking yourself that question? Is it pleasure? If people watched you, would they say, no, that, that person does all things for pleasure? Or would they say, no, all, all for peace? That person does everything they can just to maintain peace. Or is it the praise of others? Everything that you do is so that others will think well of you. Or is it for power or control or possessions? Why do you do what you do? 
Paul says the central organizing principle of the Christian's life is Jesus. All things for the sake of the gospel. The writer of the Hebrews said, Let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us or trips us up, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. And when we fix our eyes on Jesus, then we will have to also fix our eyes on others and others knowing Jesus. Read with me chapter 9 and verse 19. Paul says, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all men, so that I may win the more. To the Jews I became as a Jew so that I might win the Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are, in fact, under the law. To those who are without law as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became weak so that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men so that I may by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I may become a fellow partaker in its proclamation. Now, I've I've been uh, captivated the last few weeks by what's going on in in Ferguson, Missouri. I've been reading everything I can about it to try and understand what's happening, not just in Ferguson, but, you know, in race relations in in our country. And one of the things that really has caught my attention that has... um, it's provoked me to really dig deeper. So I read a couple articles by uh, some black evangelical pastors. In other words, guys who are just like me in terms of their worldview, right? They believe the Bible is the word of God, that Jesus Christ is the only way to have eternal life, that he is going to come again and establish his kingdom on earth. In other words, their worldview is, is so very much like me. And from the outside, the only thing that you would see would be different about us is simply the color of our skin. And yet, as I read what they write about Ferguson, their natural reaction to these events is very different from mine. And that caused me to stop and say, well, wait a second, if, if we share a worldview, why, why, why do we naturally react so differently? And as I read them, what I discover is this. According to these men, they say, it's nearly impossible to find a young black man in this country who hasn't been looked at suspiciously just because he was black. And if you white people don't believe that, ask a black friend. Okay? I did. I've asked my black friends. I said, is that true? I said, yeah, just, just because I was black. I wasn't doing anything wrong. I, just because I was black. Somebody looked at me suspiciously. And I will tell you, that's not been my experience. Why? Just because I'm white. Okay? So I don't, I, don't, I don't experience that same because I'm not, I'm not a minority. But I want to understand that perspective You know, whenever I have interacted with the law, it's always been positive. And I have great friends who are in law enforcement who love Jesus and who want to honor the dignity of men and women made in the image of Christ. And so my experience has been so different than these men's experience. But I want to understand how they think. I want to understand their perspective. Why? Because we both believe this, that the only solution to the problems of this world is Jesus Christ. But if I, can't, if I can't cross over some of these, these cultural and racial boundaries and understand how someone else thinks, then I can't help them understand how the gospel is the ultimate solution, right? If I'm not willing to cross over and really empathize and understand, I can't help them understand that Jesus is the way, Jesus is the solution, and nothing else. Right? So I want to get into someone else's experience and understand it. 
Because every man and woman is made in the image of God. I want to understand how they think based on what they've experienced. Now, the best single response that I have read to what's been happening was by a guy named Benjamin Watson. He's a wide receiver for the New Orleans Saints. And he wrote a piece in which he, he talked about everything that he was feeling as a result of what's going on. And what he tried to do is he tried to look at it from every possible perspective that he could think of. From Michael Brown's perspective and from Darren Wilson's perspective and from Michael Brown's family and Darren Wilson's family and the community and law enforcement in general. And as he went through all of these different perspectives, he he talked about how each one of these made him feel. Some made him feel sad, sometimes angry, sometimes frustrated. He said, "I I feel hopeless. I'm hopeless because it seems like these problems never get solved. And then he said, but I'm also hopeful. And he concluded with this. He said, I'm encouraged. I'm encouraged because ultimately the problem is not a skin problem. It is a sin problem. Sin is the reason we rebel against authority. Sin is the reason we abuse our authority. Sin is the reason we are racist, prejudiced, and lie to cover for our own. Sin is the reason we riot, loot, and burn. But I'm encouraged because God has provided a solution for sin through his son Jesus and with it a transformed heart and mind. One that's capable of looking past the outward and seeing what's truly important in every human being. The cure for the Michael Brown, Trayvon Martin, Tamir Rice, and Eric Garner tragedies is not education or exposure. It's the gospel. So finally, I'm encouraged because the gospel gives mankind hope. Amen? All right. Isn't that awesome? That was the best single response. I couldn't have said it better, and I couldn't have said it more powerfully than he said it. And you know, I want to explore these things because I want to understand how to help people find Jesus because Jesus is ultimately the solution to our problems. Read with me again verse 22. Paul says, To the weak I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men so that I may by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I may become a fellow partaker in the proclamation of the gospel. What does that mean practically, men and women? A couple thoughts for you. First, you and I need to be willing to get uncomfortable for Jesus and for others. As an American, you have a right to associate only with people who make you comfortable. As an American, you have a right to associate only with people who are exactly like you and who think like you, and who never disrupt anything in your life. Same race, same culture, same socioeconomic status. As an American, you have that right. But you know what? As a Christian, you don't have that right. As a Christian, you have an obligation to let God move you out of what's comfortable into somebody else's world. That's what Paul is saying. Paul says, to the weak, I became weak. That is, I I identified with the disenfranchised, those who were struggling, because that's what Jesus did. Paul says, to the Jew, I became like a Jew, because that's what Jesus did, literally. He left all of the the wonders of the comforts of heaven and he took on human flesh, Jewish flesh, became a man. Paul says, I do the same. I know I'm not under the law. I I, I don't make sacrifices for my sin any longer, but I can eat kosher when I'm with Jews. I don't care. It doesn't matter one way or the other to me. What matters is that people know Jesus. So when I'm with the Gentile, I can get into the Gentile's culture as well. I'm going to learn the Gentiles' language. I'm going to learn the Gentiles' culture. I'm going to to read their literature. Paul actually quotes Greek poets in the Bible. Why? Because he wants 
Gentiles to know Jesus, and he wants Jews to know Jesus, and he wants rich and poor and black and white and Asian and Hispanic to know Jesus because all are created in the image of God. All need Jesus. Paul says, I become all things to all men so that I may by all means save some. Second, what that means for us is that we need to be willing to surrender personal freedoms for Jesus and for others. Remember, when Paul identified with other people, it wasn't that he was surrendering personal holiness, right? He was following the example of Jesus. Jesus didn't surrender holiness, but he surrendered rights. Jesus would say, who of you accuses me of sin? And no one could speak up. Now, Jesus was accused of calling himself God, but that's okay because he was God, right? So he was accused of that. He was accused of breaking cultural norms that people were comfortable with and unsettling their world. He was accused of associating with the wrong crowd. Are you willing? Are you willing to surrender some personal freedoms that might create a barrier to the gospel for others? Would you do that? In the way that you dress, the way that you act, or the food that you eat, would you give up anything so people can know Jesus? I have a good, good friend who became a Christian from a Hindu background. And as a Hindu, he had, he had never eaten meat. He was a vegetarian. He didn't eat meat because as a Hindu, he believed particularly that the cows that he saw were gods. Now, as a Christian, he learned those aren't gods. Okay? He no longer believed that they were gods. But he said to me at one point in time, he said, Brian, how can I tell a man about Jesus when I've just eaten his God? So when he was with me and there were no Hindus around, you know what? He never ate any meat. He has not ever eaten meat. He could eat meat. He knows he has a right to eat meat. He knows that meat is not inhabited by a God. There's only one God. But he wants everyone to know that one God. And so even when he was with me, no Hindus are around, he would never touch meat because he didn't want another Hindu to hear that he had been eating meat because the gospel was more important than the meal, than food. It's just food. Are you willing to surrender anything? Have you been so gripped by what God has rescued you from through Jesus Christ? He has rescued you forever from the dead of your sin. He's given you heaven. He's given you eternal life. You've been so gripped with that that you say, I must share that. I am under compulsion. I am controlled by the gospel of Jesus Christ. The love of Christ compels me and it directs me and this is how I must live. That's what Paul's saying. All things to all men so that I may by all means save some. Read with me again chapter 9 and verse 24. Paul says, I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body. And I make it my slave so that after I preach to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Are you self-interested? Are you self-centered? You know, at some level, you really should be. You should be a very self-interested, self-centered person. You should want the best life you could possibly live. Why would you want anything else, right? 
In my way of understanding, Christianity is simply enlightened self-interest. <laughs> this is the best life you can live. Also, the best life you can live is to run to win. Put Jesus first, others second. That's best for you. Now, maybe you read the Apostle Paul sometimes and you go, you know, I just, I can't really, I have a hard time relating to Paul. I like John. John talks a lot about love, but Paul talks about war and sports. And I'm not, I just, you know, the analogies don't connect. And I don't want to win so that somebody else loses. That's not the point of Paul's analogy. Uh, Remember, in Paul's day, there were no team sports. There were only individual competitions. Paul says, you have a race for you to run. It's your life. You run your race to win. It's not that others lose. It's that you need to win the race that God has called you to win. Let me illustrate. Anybody ever watched um, youth soccer? Kids, the real little ones, right? I, I think sometimes Christians view the Christian life as youth soccer. Okay, this is what I mean. You, you watch a youth soccer game, and right, it's, it's the mob. The ball's moving, and the mob's chasing, and it's just meandering, and and I was talking to a youth soccer coach afterwards, and he said, yeah, you know, we didn't score a goal all season. Well, actually, we scored one. One of our kids kicked the ball into our own goal. That was our one goal of the season, right? They're just meandering and not really sure, and they're kicking the ball this way and just emerges out of the mob sometimes. And then some kids are just disconnected. They're just, you know, <laughs> you know there's a game going on. They're totally oblivious, right? And you're not, you're not, you don't have goalies, and you can't keep score. <laughs> what? Right? I, I will tell you, the moms say, that is so sweet. No winners, no losers. And the dads go, we're keeping score. Right? I know. The dads have got the score. They know. Because I coach for a while, right? And you have the kids go through and they shake hands. And at the end, the coaches are at the ends. And coaches shake hands. You go, I know. I know. We won. You lost. You don't even have to say it. Right? He knows. You know who won, who lost. There, there are winners and there are losers. But not in youth soccer, which is not like life at all. Right? You sign up and you get a trophy. Just because you signed up. That's crazy. That doesn't teach kids about life. Right? That's how I think Christians often view the Christian life. I signed up, I get a trophy. It doesn't matter if I follow the mob around the field directionless and unintentional. Because at the end we all go high fives, no winners, no losers. We shake hands and I get my trophy and I go home. That's not how the Christian life works. Christian life works a lot more like the Navy SEALs. Okay? To get into the Navy SEALs, the first thing you do is you join the Navy. Right? That's like becoming a Christian. The free gift of eternal life is given to you because you believe in Jesus Christ. You sign up. You believe. And then you belong to God forever. My, my father-in-law was in the Navy. He retired, but he would still say, I'm, I'm Navy. He wears Navy caps. He wears Navy shirts. He belongs to the Navy. The moment you believe in Jesus Christ, you belong to God, and you will never lose that relationship. But God doesn't want you just simply in the family. He wants you to be a warrior for the family. That's God's goal for every single Christian, that we would be the best of the best, the warriors, right? There are some who join the Navy, and they say, I want to be the best of the best. I want to be in the SEALs. But not everybody makes it, because not everybody is willing to train that hard and discipline themselves that much to be a part of the best of the best. Some make it, And when they join, they're placed in a team and the team works together and they discipline themselves together so that they can win together. That's the church. And that's what God wants for your Christian experience that you say, I want to live my life for Jesus and for others. Who else will join me in that? And you win together. You win your race and you help others around you win their race. That's what the Christian life is about.
Now, how do you do that? Paul gives us three ideas. First, you have to train to win. Verse 25, he says, everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. I will tell you, I, I, I like reading Paul because I like sports. I like all sports because I love competition. I will confess, though, I don't like to run, by which I mean just running to run. Like, what's the point, right? You just, you're just running, and you're still running. What, you know, that to me feels like youth soccer. Right, run, 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 right? I know, and you, all you runners out there are going, oh, man, you just don't get it, Brian, because you reach this point where you hit this runner's high, and I go, no, I don't. <laughs> I never have, and I've run a long way. I just, no, nope, no, nope, that doesn't work. That's not how it works, right? I don't like it. So, you know, and I can run and I do run, but I don't like to run. So when I do run, it looks like I'm in an argument with the ground kind of, right? There's a boom, 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 right? I don't look like a runner, you know, they're just gliding, right? I, I got friends who are like that. Kevin Barra, our youth pastor, he ran in college. Kevin Barra just, he just floats. I've seen Kevin run. It's amazing. He's like a gazelle. He just, whoosh, right? He's just floating across the ground. It looks effortless when Kevin does it. Why? Because Kevin has trained to run. It's not effortless. Kevin just makes it look effortless because he's trained to run. We had a guy in our college ministry years ago when we were uh, doing the college class across the street and uh, he ran for A&M. He wanted to go to the Olympics and I asked him about his training at one point in time and he, he described it to me. He, he ordered everything in his life around the goal of the Olympics. Everything. So his, his class schedule, his schoolwork, his homework, when he slept, how much he trained, everything that he ate. I mean, literally, there was never a wasted calorie. And he was on a schedule of when he would eat and how much he would drink. It was amazing. I've never seen a college student that disciplined, that focused. He was training to win. That's what Paul is talking about here. The analogy is from a race. And the runners in this race were disciplined. Paul says they exercise self-control, or as the NIV defines it, they go into strict training. They would be selected locally, and if they won a local race, they would be brought to the Isthmian Games, to the arena there, and they would train for 10 months. They would sign up for 10 months of training by professional trainers. They would eat together, sleep together, drink together, train together. There'd be a trumpet call in the morning. First trumpet was your warning. You got to get up in a few minutes. Second trumpet call, trumpet call, they had to arrive in the arena for training. You know the name of the training arena? Literally, the agony. <laughs> the agony. If they left training any time during the 10 months, they were disqualified. If they violated the diet, they were disqualified. They trained in any weather. Rain, snow, sleet, heat, cold, without clothes. Okay? All to win. All to win. Verse 27, Paul says, I discipline my body. Literally, he says, I blacken my eye. Because I know I have a body that craves things that don't cause me to win the race. And so I beat my flesh into submission. I say no to certain things so that I can say yes to Jesus and yes to others. Train to win. Second, run the right race. Verse 25. Everyone who competes, literally everyone who agonizes, 
Everyone who agonizes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. His imagery that they would understand, this is the Isthmian games. They're held just a few miles outside of Corinth, sponsored by the city of Corinth. Every three years in honor to the god Poseidon, god of the sea. And the victor would receive a, a spruce wreath placed on his head. He would stand on a podium on a, lectern, on a podium, and they would they'd place the wreath on his head and proclaim his name and the name of his city. And that's all the award that he received at the games. But when he went home, the city lavished awards upon him. They would knock a hole in the city wall and he would march through that hole. And the idea was, if we have this great man in our city, we don't even need a wall to defend us. They'd place him on a chariot and he'd ride that chariot through the city and they would compose songs to honor him. And choirs of young boys would sing songs in his honor. And they would hire sculptors to make a sculpture of him in his most athletic pose. Right? There you go. Throw in the discus. You've seen him. Then they would give him money from the city coffers. They would pay for his family to eat freely for the rest of their lives. His children would go to the best academies. He'd get a seat of honor. The city council, he would get a box seat at the Isthmian Games for the rest of his life. He would be free of all taxes for the rest of his life. And Paul says, perishable. The absolute best that the world has to offer you is perishable. Paul says, that's not what we live for. Anything the world offers you wilts. But God offers you an imperishable wreath. Four crowns are listed in the New Testament for believers who live for Jesus. All of them have essentially the same point, and it is this. They are a share in the glory and the honor of Jesus Christ the victor. When Christ's victory is proclaimed, those who have lived for Jesus Christ are proclaimed victors along with him. That's the point of the crowns. In 1881, Romania became a kingdom, and King Charles realized that there was no crown for Romania, because they had not yet been a kingdom. And so he ordered that the cannons that had been captured from enemies be melted down and a crown made from the iron. Because he wanted the crown to symbolize victories won in battle. That is the point of biblical crowns. Victories won in battle. And what do we do with those victories won in battle? When Jesus appears in the throne room of God, we take those crowns and throw them at his feet. And we worship Jesus for his victory over sin and death and Satan and all enemies that we have shared with him and we worship. We worship. Paul says, run the right race. I want you to imagine someday you're finishing this race and you're about to bust through the tape and you're going to enter into eternity. You're about to finish your race. And you're striving and you're straining to finish well. And as you bust through the tape, the the voices that may have been cheering you on in this life, praising you for a variety of things, they all of a sudden grow quiet. And all that you see is, is there's just an audience of one. It's just God. And he's standing there as you bust through the tape and you're finishing your race and God is applauding. Can you imagine God is applauding? He's saying, well run, well run. You lived well. You lived wisely. 
You lived for what really mattered. Well done, well done. And he gathers together all those who have also raced and run well. And they begin to applaud and to praise. And then he gathers all the hosts of heaven who join together. And they say, let us celebrate the victory of Jesus and what he has won through us. And they all join together. Well done, well run. Are you running the right race? Because there are a lot of races in this life that simply don't matter. And finally, Paul says, run in the right way. Verse 26. Therefore, I run like this. I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. Paul says, I run on purpose. Anybody here sign up for a big race next weekend in Bryan College Station? Anybody? Okay. Got a couple. I don't I can't relate to you. I don't understand you. But um, I I assume that you know that it's uh, not a sprint. It's not a sprint. Anybody who signed up for the race next weekend knows it's called the BCS Marathon. It's a half marathon or a marathon, which is such a big number. I don't even know what it is. It's on stickers for some people. But I don't know. It's It's not a sprint. And if you signed up, you know you're not running a sprint. You trained for a race that's not a sprint. You trained for a long race. And as you're training, one of the only things that keeps you motivated is you know where the finish line is. You know what the goal is. This is what Paul says. I run with aim. I know what the goal is. That's why I can put up with all of the discipline required today. Because I'm living for that day. Paul says, I run with aim. He says, I I don't box as beating the air. In those days, this is how they would box. They'd swing their arms like, like a windmill. And they'd put uh, lead weights in their gloves and sometimes spikes on the gloves. So, man, you don't want to get hit once, right? And this is how they would swing. Paul says, we don't box like this. This is how we box. We box with aim. We box with purpose. Why? Paul says, I, 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 I run in such a way as not without aim. I box not beating the air, but I blacken my eye. I discipline my body. I make my body my slave. My body is my tool to accomplish God's purposes through me. Why? Because I don't want to be disqualified. Okay, remember the analogy. Probably talking about the 200 meter sprint in this analogy. And if you broke training, you stepped out of the agony, out of the ring, you violated the diet, you didn't get up for the trumpet call, or you got in the race and you stepped over, crossed over the line into somebody else's lane disqualified. You don't get to win the race. Paul is not talking about loss of salvation. Paul didn't fear that he himself would lose salvation. He didn't fear that he would discover he wasn't saved. What he feared is that he wouldn't run well and that he would stand before Jesus Christ someday and Jesus would not say, well done. What he lived for was breaking through that tape and having all the hosts of heaven join with him and saying, well run. (laughs) You, You live so wisely on this earth. Here's the victor's crown. For all those who have lived for Jesus. And so that others might know Jesus. That's the best life you can live. In 1857, David Livingstone, missionary in Africa, was addressing a group of college students at Cambridge. And he said this. People talk of the sacrifice I have made in spending so much of my life in Africa. Say rather it is a privilege Anxiety, sickness, suffering, or danger, now and then, with the foregoing of the common conveniences and charities of this life, may make us pause and cause the spirit to waver and the soul to sink. But let this only be for a moment. All these are nothing 
when compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us and for us, I have never made a sacrifice. Whereas the Apostle Paul said, this is the one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward, straining to what lies ahead, I press on for the goal, for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This is why I live. On purpose. Let's pray. Father, I pray that Jesus would so capture our, our, our hearts that we would want to live only for him, for his honor and his glory. And having been captured by Jesus, we would feel compelled to share him with others. I pray, Father, that we would be willing to make any sacrifice, put up with any suffering, relinquish any right, so that every man and every woman and every child can learn of Jesus. Father, I pray that you would give us wisdom to remove the encumbrances, the the distractions, the sin that so easily entangles us and trips us up, so that we can run with endurance the race that you have given to us with our eyes just on Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Run your race well this week. We'll see you next week.